What a wonderful time it's been in worship. Thank you, Tabitha and praise team. Thank you, Arwen, for leading us in prayer. I even got some good tips today on what to do with my puppy when I get home. Thank you, Nancy. It's been wonderful to be in worship together. A number of years ago, Martin Doppelmeyer produced a film entitled The Power of Forgiveness. Maybe you've seen it. It's been out for a while. It explores how forgiveness can transform your life. And one of the seven stories featured in that film was that of Elie Wiesel. Elie Wiesel may be a a well-known name to some of you. He's probably the most famous concentration camp survivor from World War II, one of them. He lost many family members and friends who were exterminated by the Nazis in those camps. As Wiesel's story is featured in the film, footage from Auschwitz runs in the background and the narrator begins to say, Elie Wiesel was one of the few who lived to walk out of the camps. After the war, for the next 10 years, he was virtually silent about the experience. But for the last half century, his gift for putting words to the nightmare that was the Holocaust has helped generations never to forget. Then the footage in the film shifts to show Wiesel standing in the remains of a concentration camp, and he begins to speak. He says, I want you to look. Look and listen. And then close your eyes and listen, but open your hearts and listen. Listen to the question we asked ourselves then. What happened here? And then the the scene shifts again, and the elderly Wiesel is now sitting in the interview chair, and he is grappling with the powerful emotions that are going on in his heart, emotions that have been going on in his heart for a long time. And then he says this, I composed a prayer not that long ago. Literally, I composed this prayer saying, God of mercy, have no mercy on these souls. On these murderers of children, God of compassion, have no compassion on them. And as he begins to speak his prayer, the scene in the movie shifts to show young Jewish children rolling up their sleeves to show the tattoos of the numbers on their arms that would replace their names. Wiesel continued, I was criticized all over the world for that prayer because it was published all over the world, but I felt it. I still feel it. Some persons, he said, do not deserve forgiveness. There's an Old Testament prophet who would agree with that line of thinking. As we come to the end of his story, I invite you to open your Bibles with me. We go to the very last chapter of Jonah's story. And as we open there together, I want to invite you to go to the very last verse of chapter 3 to get the context as we go into chapter 4. We're going to look at this last chapter in three different movements. And to start with the first movement, we go to the last verse of chapter 3. So powerful last week how Pastor Ken led us through chapter 3. We begin with the last verse of that chapter, verse 10. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. 
chapter 4, verse 1. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry? In this first movement of the last chapter, Jonah's anger is on full display. He is upset, furious over the lack of justice that has been given and over the abundance of mercy that has. That phrase, he became angry, in the original language, means literally burning or inflamed as with fire. You get the picture. Jonah is absolutely fuming. Now, it's usually about this point in the chapter as we're reading through this that we might stand in judgment of Jonah. We tend to point our finger and say, Jonah, quit your pouting, quit your whining. You shouldn't be so upset, God forgiving these people. You should be rejoicing. But before you or I start to point the finger in judgment, put yourself in Jonah's position. Wouldn't you be a little upset? We began the message today by recounting the story and the words of Elie Wiesel. As you think about some of the images you have seen, some of the stories you have read about the Holocaust, you can understand Wiesel's words, can't you? I remember it wasn't uh, that long ago where I went to visit uh, Beamy's family in Maryland and we took a day to go to the Holocaust Museum. I don't know if any of you have ever been there in DC. Images that I saw there are still seared into my memory. As you think about some of the horrific things you have seen or read about, you can understand Wiesel. You can understand why he would compose such a prayer like, God of compassion, have no compassion on them. Well, if you can understand Wiesel, then you can understand Jonah. What the Assyrians used to do to their enemies, what they used to do to innocent women and children is unthinkable. They were the scourge of the earth at that time arguably one of the most cruel nations in the history of the world. So for Jonah, it was clear, if you do those kinds of things, if you perpetrate those kinds of acts, then what you deserve is judgment, harsh judgment. Yet instead, they get mercy? Are you kidding me, God? You're going to give them mercy? Isn't this what I said would happen when I was at home? This is exactly what I was trying to avoid by running away. And as Jonah quarrels with God, he sorts out for us exactly why he knew this would happen. He knew this would happen because he knew that God is gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in love. Do you realize that that statement is something of a creed that describes the character of God in the Old Testament scriptures? It appears seven different times at almost word for word in key moments of Israel's history. Sometimes it is spoken by God. Sometimes it is spoken by the prophets. Moses was there to hear God speak the words. David speaks the words. So does Joel and Ezra. And now here we have Jonah speaking them. This God is what you are like. And because you are like this, we will not get any justice. 
And that makes me mad. Have you ever found yourself angry at the grace of God? Just let that sink in for a little bit. It's been a question that has been haunting me as I have been studying this chapter this week. Have you ever been angry at the grace of God? Well, after listening to his rant, God responds to Jonah with a question. It's one of two questions that I believe we are also supposed to ponder and decide what our answer will be. God simply says, Jonah, is it right for you to be angry? Is it right for you to be angry? Well, the answer that we should give to that question, that I should give to that question, of course, is a resounding no. Of course, it's not right for, for me to be angry, Lord, but, but I know me. <laughs> I don't know about you, but I know me. If I'm honest, I bet my response will be much like what the response Jonah eventually gives when God asks that question again about anger, about the plant later on in the chapter. And Jonah says, it is absolutely right for me to be angry. I quoted his book earlier. I'd encourage you to pick it up if you, if you haven't. Eugene Peterson's book, Under the Unpredictable Plant. He gives some insight in there as to why it feels so right to be angry. I want to share that with you. He says this, when anger erupts in us, it is a signal that something is wrong. Something isn't working right. There is evil or incompetence or stupidity lurking about. Anger is our sixth sense for sniffing out wrong in the neighborhood. Diagnostically, it is virtually infallible, and we learn to trust it. Anger is also infused, he goes on to say, by a moral, spiritual intensity that carries conviction. When we are angry, we know we are on to something that matters, that really counts. When God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry? Jonah shot back, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. Anger often feels right because it's our signal that something is wrong. But there's something else we need to be aware of when it comes to anger. Something we need to remember that Peterson goes on to share in the next paragraph. He says this, what anger fails to do, though, is tell us whether the wrong is outside or inside us. We usually begin by assuming that the wrong is outside us. Our spouse, our child, or our God has done something wrong, and we are angry. That is what Jonah did, and he quarreled with God. But... When we track the anger carefully, we often find it leads to a wrong within us. Wrong information, inadequate understanding, or an underdeveloped heart. Boy, as much as I hate to admit it, when I track my anger carefully, it usually leads to pointing out a wrong within me. Scholars point out that this phrase here in the original language, any right, where God says, do you have any right, Jonah, to be angry, is maybe better translated as, is it causing good? That's why Eugene Peterson renders it, do you do well to be angry? Is it causing good? In other words, God is saying, is it causing any good, Jonah, for you to burn with anger like this? 
I find it very encouraging that God does not dismiss Jonah's anger here. He doesn't say, stop that, not another word. Instead, he invites him to process it with him. Is it good for you to burn with anger like this, Jonah? If you're like me and you struggle time to time, and I do struggle with this from time to time, with anger, even anger at the grace of God, I invite you to accept God's invitation to process that anger with him. Surrender it to him. Talk it out with him. But beware, be warned. If you do that, he will often help you track that anger back to something that is wrong within you. Moving on to the second movement, we go to verse 5. Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat inside its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. He's still holding out hope. (laughs) Destruction will come. Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, is it good? Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said, and I'm so angry I wish I were dead. I think if I were to come up with a title for this second movement of the text, I would call it discomfort. Jonah, no doubt, is upset over what has transpired. He goes east, away from the city, builds this makeshift shelter to sit in the shade and waits to see what will happen. Then God provides this leafy plant to grow over and give him more shade. And the text says it eases Jonah's discomfort. In fact, it says that he is very happy. Jonah is feeling so comfortable that he is very happy. I can't help but wonder if the text is trying to illustrate a lesson here for how God's people tend to retreat back or desire to be in a place of comfort. I know it is cliche to say God uses us and brings us outside of our comfort zone, but it's a cliche for a reason, because that's what he does. He does take us out of our comfort zone. And if we're honest, at least this is, if I'm being honest about how I dialogue with God sometimes, I have attitudes that say, God, I'm cool if you call me to do something. I'm down if you decide to work through me. I'm okay if you want to grow me spiritually as long as it isn't too uneasy or inconvenient or an uncomfortable process. Am I the only one that says that? No? Okay, I got a few witnesses in here. Jonah has retreated to a place of comfort, waiting to see how God will work. And as Pastor Ken so powerfully illustrated last week, God is working outside the boundaries of Jonah's degree of comfort. He has been doing that since the beginning of this story. And as I said, I know it's cliche, that is often how God works. Outside the boundaries of my degree of comfort, of your degree of comfort. I found myself asking the question, why? 
Lord, why does it have to be so uncomfortable all the time? Are you like up there just taking pleasure and having our lives be miserable, making us feel awkward or uneasy? Of course not. God does not want to have us live miserable lives. Why? Why does it have to be uncomfortable? I think when God works, it's outside our comfort zone because God's ways are not our ways. God's thoughts are not our thoughts. And so when we follow his ways, when we try to adopt his thoughts, it it leads us to to be stretched and, and to be challenged, to see things the way he sees, to love the way he does. And that inevitably will lead us outside our degree of comfort. I think God is trying to get Jonah to realize this because after God makes Jonah very comfortable, he then purposely makes him uncomfortable. First, the worm comes, kills the plant that provides the extra shade, and then he provides this scorching east wind. And after that happens, Jonah gets so uncomfortable, he says, I would rather be dead than alive. I want to read to you from an old commentary, Dennis Bailey's The Geography of the Bible, to help give you an idea of just how uncomfortable this moment would have been for Jonah as that uh, violent east wind, uh, uh, scorching east wind comes about. He says this, a scorching east wind is normally called a Sirocco. During the period of a Sirocco, the temperatures rise steeply, sometimes climbing during the night even. And it remains high, maybe 16 to 22 degrees Fahrenheit above the average in the desert. That's a lot. Every scrap of moisture feels like it has been extracted from the air so that one has the curious feeling that one's skin has been drawn around more tightly than usual. Sirocco days are peculiarly trying to the temper and tend to make even the mildest of people irritable and fretful and to snap at other people for no apparent reason at all. Obviously, such a wind desiccates and withers all green growth. When a Sirocco comes, all who can hasten to find shelter. But for Jonah, there was no shelter unless he was willing to re-enter Nineveh. The booth he had made for himself would not exclude the wind and only partially broke the sun's rays. Completely dispirited, he said, I'd rather be dead than alive. You get the picture? God is working far outside Jonah's degree of comfort. And isn't that usually where God's grace operates? Outside our degree of comfort. It might sound cliche, but it's true. When it comes to God, especially his grace, you got to get comfortable being uncomfortable. And then we get to the third movement. Now that the discomfort has set in pretty good, God asks the anger question again, this time in regards to the plan. He's trying to still teach his prophet, you know, what he's getting at here, not giving up on him. And then that leads into the final movement and the final question to answer. Verse 10, but the Lord said, you have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. Should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, 
and also many animals. If I were to give this last section a title, I think I would simply call it The Question. Very original, I know, but that's how it ends, right? With a piercing, probing, penetrating question. Jonah, should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh? In the original language, that word concern, scholars say, means to take action with tears flowing down the cheeks. This kind of concern, they say, is a suffering action. Boy, what a picture we get here of God, one that we know so well from the cross, but even we get it here. What God is saying here is that here I will take upon myself the evil of Nineveh. I will bear the weight of its violence, the pain of a thousand plundered cities, even Israel's. God chooses to suffer in the place of those that deserve the suffering. His tears will flow instead of theirs. God asks, should I not have tears in my eyes for them? Over all those people who are also my creation, who are responsible absolutely for their actions, but at the same time don't know their right hand from their left. In other words, they are caught up in this culture of violence. They don't have a culture around them like you do where, where, where my ways are a part of that, the fabric of that culture. Should I not have tears in my eyes even for the animals that are caught up in the middle of that kind of culture? Should I not have concern over this great city? Tears for them, Jonah. Really what this last question is trying to teach is that ultimately the book of Jonah is about God. It's about the kind of God he is. Notice the book doesn't end with a call to action. It doesn't say, hey, go love others as yourself. Treat them as you want to be treated. Go and preach the gospel to every nation, tongue, and people. Good things to say. But that's not what we are given as an appeal. It ends with a question, a question that helps give us a vision of God, a God whose mercy exceeds our comfort. And in the last movement, God is trying to teach this vision to Jonah. But Jonah never answers the question. And we wonder why. Why does it end that way, unresolved? Why don't we get an answer from Jonah? Well, I'd like to submit to you that maybe it's intentional. For that question is something that needs to be answered time and time again from people like you and me. And the way in which you and I choose to answer that question will affect the way in which we view God, our vision of what he is like, which of course will affect the way in which we view others. It will affect whether or not we follow God to work beyond the boundaries of our degree of comfort. So what will your answer to that question be? Should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, or maybe said in a way that hits a little closer to home. Should I not have concern over the ones that are precious to me whom you are fuming about? If you need some help formulating your answer, may I remind you of the way in which Scripture describes God over and over again, that he is compassionate, gracious, 
slow to anger, and abounding in love.